Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. One of the things that all those conditions has in common is perfectionism, perfectionistic thinking. And they, and, they, and and one of the kind of academic clinical definitions of perfectionism is it's somebody that has unusually high expectations for success and kind of repeatedly fails to hit those um, uh, markers for success. So they, they continually feeling like they're a loser and they're a failure. And that's what our culture does these days. It sets an unusually high marker for success. It, it, it presents us with this um, perfect self on TV, on radio, on the internet and social media. And it says, if you're not this person, you have failed. So if you're not Beyonce, is the message. If you're not Steve Jobs, then you, you're doing something wrong. And that is um, incredibly toxic. It really, really is incredibly toxic because it's not true. Um, uh, and uh, and what, what happens is that people blame themselves. They think, well, I'm a failure. And, and, then you, and then that's when you get this whole raft of terrible kind of psychological disorders. And actually between the first edition of Selfie, my book, and the, the, the second one, between the UK edition and the US edition, there was published a study um, of 40,000 young people across the US, Canada, and the UK since 1990. and um, it, it, it confirmed my kind of hunch that um, levels of perfectionism are rising, have been rising significantly since the late 80s, early 90s. That is, people um, are thinking more and more that they have to be perfect in order to kind of be an acceptable human being. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Will, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Srini. It's great to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story because I stumbled up on your book, Selfie, how we became so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us in a bookstore. And given how much I've studied sort of the impact of social media and, and distractions on our lives, I, I thought this has to be a really important book and I could not put it down. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your own life and career? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, so they were in education. So my, my mum was, a, was a, a teacher and ended up and a governor of the school I went to. My dad was started off as a teacher and ended up being like an 
I'm like a schools inspector kind of person. And what what I, I, I what influence did it have? You know what? Not much. I didn't have the happiest of childhoods, and um, uh, they were because they were in education. They they pushed me very hard on the academic side of things, and I pushed back, and I actually didn't do very well academically. I I kind of. Uh, fell into well, I just didn't do any work at school. That's the truth, you know. And the more pressure they put on me, the less work I did, and ended up just drinking and mucking about with drugs and with girls and things. So, and um, and I didn't go to university. So, I was a huge disappointment to my um, um parents. But one of the things I always told them was that you know you're, all, you're doing all this worry, <laughs> doing all this worrying about me, and I want to be a journalist. And journalists don't need qualifications; they just need to do the job. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I was right. <laughs> I was right about that. So, so, so yeah. Um, uh, I, I think I, I, I don't know whether you could class the influence on me as sort of negative or positive, really. Uh, but, but, yeah. but, but there it is. So, your parents were educators. You resisted education, yet you're a journalist. And I know from having read this book, you don't write a book like this without some level of intellectual curiosity, depth, and the ability to educate yourself. So, what changed to make that happen? Well, um, well, I mean, you can't be a journalist and be any good without, um, without learning stuff. And I think I was always interested, I was always interested particularly in psychology. That was the only kind of thing that I wanted to study when I was, I was, I was a kid, but I went to a, you know, a state school, a, um, I don't know what you call it in America. It's just a public school where, you know, like a not a great school. And, um, and I didn't do psychology there. So, um, so, so there was wasn't an option. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's, that was the kind of, um, thing I fell into. So, so, so really it, it's my interest in, in science has started when I wrote my second book and, and the second book was called The Unpersuadables and it's about the psychology of belief. And it's asking the question, um, why do clever people, why do otherwise clever people end up believing crazy things? And because, you know, everybody talks about climate change deniers and people who believe in, you know, creation is sort of theories of God, et cetera. And, and, and the, the common parlance is, oh, well, what are the, it's because they're stupid, they're idiots. It's like, that isn't true. And, and, and when you're a journalist, you, you very quickly learn that this, this kind of, the, the kind of default argument that people who don't agree with me don't do so because they're stupid just isn't true. You meet people all the time who are, who see the world completely differently to you and yet are obviously um, smart people. So that's, that became sort of a mystery to me. But of course, in order to find that why, clever people believe crazy things you first have to find out why anybody believes anything and so that and that that kind of pushed me in the direction of um finding out about psychology really and 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 that's and been a kind of rabbit hole that i've been going down now for something like a decade mm, wow so having parents who are educators having resisted the the sort of you know, ideals that were passed on to you and the messages that were passed on to you. If you had the opportunity to go into our school system today, regardless of where it was, how would you go about redesigning it based on your experiences? Well, um, I, I, I think one of the things the education system, the school system does fantastically badly is um, just tell young people what a human being is. You know, what is a person and what are the good things about being a person? And what are the, but more importantly, what are the kind of b- bad things about being a person? You know, what are the things that are, what are the kind of traps that a person can kind of fall into? And so I, I guess there's two different areas that, that I think are especially interesting. And the first one is, you know, the area of our kind of prejudices and biases, because that's, that, that's one of the things that I learned researching the unpersuadables, which, I, you know, that, that book was published sort of three or four years ago, but since kind of Trump and Brexit, it's become even more 
um, relevant and, uh, to me. Uh, uh, and it's just this idea that um, the brain isn't a, a data processor. The, the brain isn't a computer kind of analyzing its environment, you know, doing calculations and working out what the truth is. The brain is a storyteller. It doesn't really care about the truth. What the brain wants to do is make you feel kind of heroic and moral and motivate you to get out of bed in the morning and get on with your life and succeed. And it will, it doesn't, and it will kind of tend to uncritically accept any kind of facts about the, uh, that it comes across that flatter that heroic sense of story of you that it's created and it'll tend to reject anything that um, counteracts that. And these are extraordinarily powerful biases. Nobody is free of them, you know, gender, race, doesn't matter. If you've got a human brain, you've got a problem um, because your brain, assuming you're psychologically healthy, is going to work very, very hard to continually reassure you that you are right about the stuff that you instinctively believe and also that you are a moral person. So no matter what we do in our lives, we the brain rapidly builds a self, uh, uh, sorry, rapidly builds a story about the thing that you've done that, 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 that turns you into the hero of the piece. So, you know, even domestic abusers and murderers, when, when psychologists interview them and have some story about why they were justified, why it was, um, why they were pushed into it. You know, there's always some kind of heroic narrative the brain comes up with. So that's the first thing. Um, you, you know, and especially when it comes to politics, and we have the adolescents, we discover the kind of the political realm. Um, the whole point of being uh, of bias and prejudice is, is, is it that it is invisible to you? You can't see your own biases and prejudices. The world feels clear and obvious and. Um, uh, logical and orderly to most people because you know brains simplify the world um and so the, but the danger of that is that when somebody sees the world differently we immediately go we, we immediately think well it's obvious what the truth is and if you're saying the truth is something else then you're obviously either evil or or um uh or stupid it's one of those kind of two answers and it's very rarely true <laughs> very rarely true so so, so so that's that's the first thing and, and the second thing is i think is that that we we kind of live in this culture in the west where we have this both left-wing people and right-wing people tend to be kind of genetic um kind of denialists we don't like the idea of genes we don't like the idea that we are biological creatures who are kind of um partly genetic and you know and the, and the rest of who we are is tends to be kind of built and defined in the first um in childhood really and and then sort of to a lesser extent in adolescence um and 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 the fact that that kind of defines us and limits us so we kind of fall for this myth in the west that you can be anyone you want to be you can do anything you want to do you've just got to kind of if you see your dreams just reach out and grab them i saw that in a film the other day into the wild it's just like that is nonsense you know <laughs> the, the iq is real you know we, we um personality is real you know it's um you, you, you can want to be Beyonce um, as much as you like, but, but the chances are you're, you're highly unlikely to ever become Beyonce. And it's not your fault, and more importantly, it's not your failing that you didn't become Steve Jobs or Beyonce. You know, it's, it's because we all have these kind of inbuilt limits and these inbuilt kind of directions, uh, you know, uh, uh, in which our kind of brains want to send us in terms of, you know, our lifetimes. And I think that that's another thing. I, th I think schools don't do a great job of, um, of, 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 uh, it's, it's not really, it's, you could see it as setting limits on children. You, you don't want to set limits on children, but, but, it, but it's really working out, you know, in, in which direction should we send this child such that they are most likely to be 
happy and mm-hmm. um and um you know have kind of successful lives and and so all the science that's been done on on personality type i think you know i, I would love to see that um being brought into the education system because i think that 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 it uh, he, 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 you know, it treats young people as, as I say, as, as if they, as if brains just roll off the conveyor belt in uh, some tech, you know, manufacturing company in Shenzhen or somewhere. Like they're all exactly the same human brains, and they're not. They're madly, wildly different. Um, and and so I think that's uh, that's that, that's another thing that, that, that could be improved. So really, in a nutshell, it's um, part of the education of young people is, is, is telling them what is a person? What is a human being? What do we know about this kind of weird animal <laughs> that you are? Um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 yeah, I think that's re- really important and it's something that's just not happening at the moment. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So I, I've interviewed uh, Elon Musk's ex-wife, Justine, uh, okay. when she wrote a piece about the psychology of visionaries, because somebody had posted a question on Quora, a student saying, how can I become great like Steve Jobs, uh, Richard Branson, or Elon Musk? And yeah. one of the people who replied to the question was Justine. Right. And the answer went viral, led to a piece in the New York Times. And it was really interesting. But one of the things that we talked about was the fact that this is not something that you can model and create a formula to, you know, recreate you know there are certain people who are born this way Hmm. and that is she said i don't want to get deterministic but i'm pretty clear on the fact that i'm probably never going to be elon musk yeah well that's it and that is absolutely true and and it comes down to very very small differences in genes and very very small differences in things like how your hormonal systems are wired up and how you know parts of your brain are wired up so um and that's why personality is so important so the kinds of people that you are seeing that are, that are becoming Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Sheryl Sandberg or whoever they might be at the top of these very, very competitive hierarchies are wired up such that they have, they take, um, unusually great reward, uh, in winning battles of kind of status, right? So this is, uh, and they have that kind of wiring and that, and then they have, um, you know, that, that teamed with this, obviously this, this particular intelligence for technology. So it's a very mm-hmm. unusual kind of collection of, um, uh, 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 qualities and why that kind of the way that your brain and kind of hormonal systems are wired up is important is because, because, you know, the more rewards you experience for winning these kind of battles of individual status, the more work you, hard you're going to work, the more pleasure and reward you're going to get out of, of rinsing every single minute out of every single day. Like one, mm. of the, one of the sort of interesting moments I had when it really sort of came home to me was that, so my wife's an editor and one of the perks you get when you're a journalist is sometimes you get to write, they send you to ex- on expensive holidays and you write about the holiday and, and, and that's what you do. So, so we, we were staying in the Maldives in this resort that we would never, ever in a million years be able to afford to stay there if we're actually paying proper money for it. So, you know, we've got, we got it at a rate. Um, and and, um, and uh, so it's full of millionaires, tech people, you know, um, there was some celebrities cycling around. And, I, and um, I spoke to the guy who was the personal trainer that ran the gym. And um, he said, you know, he's worked at other resorts. And the difference between this resort of kind of high achieving wealthy people was that his job wasn't to encourage people to work harder. His job was to to get people to calm the fuck down. Because what would happen, he said, (laughs) is that he'd get one person on a running machine doing a thing. And then the next person would come next to them and then they just, and they would just start racing each other. It would just immediately become this insane competition in the heat of the Maldives to who could last the longest, run the fastest. And, and, and that's what they were like. And I just thought, you know what, that, that, that is exactly right. You know, and that's what we're talking about here. So, and I, and I think that's the danger when you look at 
the, these individuals at the top of these kind of hierarchies, they're unusual people. They're incredibly mm. interested in status versus status battles and they're incredibly smart. And the fact that you're never going to be Sheryl Sandberg or Elon Musk doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means that there are different kinds of human and there are, you know, there's so much talk about diversity these days, but you never hear talk about kind of genetic diversity. That's so much more kind of vast and important for my, as far as I'm concerned, the gender or race or any of these other kind of more surface differences. Personality really matters and it really does help define what's going to happen to you. It's a huge predictor of, you know, what's going to happen to you. You know, we live in a culture in which the, you know, one of the, one of the five traits is extroversion. It's the most, I mean, it's one of the most famous ones. People understand ex- the extrovert, introvert kind of, uh, kind of spectrum. And, and when you see people on television and adverts, they tend to be extroverts, popular, um, uh, sensation seeking. So people tend to want to become in- extroverts, more extrovert in the West, um, certainly. Um, but, 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 the, but, but the other thing, the thing about extroverts is it's not all good, but because they, because they love attention and because they love kind of status seeking, an extrovert is far more likely to be unfaithful to you as a long-term partner. They're far more likely to be able to resist the temptation of having that affair with that good-looking person 10 years younger than them in the office than somebody who isn't a, an extrovert. An extrovert is far more likely to die in a road traffic accident because they're far more likely to take those risks and get that kind of short-term sensation seeking pleasure out of taking those risks. So these are the kinds of people that we're talking about. And, you know, and one of the things that, 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 that you can see, I think, in a lot of these people is, um, well, you see it in Elon Musk, for example, him getting in those ridiculous Twitter rounds with that the guy, the, the guy with a submarine in Thailand, you know, and, and, and that's exactly the kind of personality he's got. If you insult him or if he feels insulted, he will, he will fight you, not physically, but in the social realm. He cannot bloody resist it. And that is why he's the man he is today. Like you can't take away that from the success. And it's the same with Steve Jobs. When I mean, anybody knows anything about Steve Jobs knows that he was an incredibly aggressive individual like if this guy had had a different childhood and a different background um if he'd been work you know if he'd been raised say in the 1940s in the bronx he'd have probably been a violent man i mean and he wasn't but his aggression was channeled in into that kind of insane competition um uh, with, with other people you know when 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 you upset steve jobs he wouldn't just shut you out of his life he'd seek vengeance he was that kind of individual and that when he felt his kind of personal sense of status being um, challenged, he would he, he he would he would respond with kind of overwhelming force. So he, he had to be the best, and um, he would push everybody around him to be the best too. And 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 again, you know, it's, it's funny. Like we always want our heroes in in culture to be wonderful, lovely people. And often, I think heroes aren't wonderful, lovely people. Often, heroes are disagreeable. Um, um, uh, slightly unpleasant people, and they they become heroes because they are they have that level of aggression in them. They they won't kind of just go along with the status quo. They will push and push and push in order to get what they want. And a, and a huge amount of that is um is genetic. A significant part of that is genetic, and and a, and a lot of the rest of it, um, a lot of the rest of you know why we become the people that we are. It, it happens in early childhood, and it's experiences over which you have no control, kind of whatsoever. So by the time you're kind of in your early twenties, your personality isn't set by any stretch of the imagination, but 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 it, but it, but, it, but it tends to be very hard to change um, deliberately. You know, you can't suddenly become click your fingers and become an extrovert. Personality um, transformation isn't possible. 
um, in, in a sense where you can just you know move that dial in, in any sort of massively significant sense. Our personality tends to change in moderate ways and in predictable ways as, as we get older. Um, so, so we're not these gods that that we're raised to believe we are in the West. We, we don't have this complete control over who we are, and we don't have this complete control over our fates. Um, uh-huh. uh, and 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 so I, I think that's a really important thing to understand, and, and it's and it's important to understand because I think it makes people extremely unhappy. This idea, this idea that we we can make ourselves perfect just by you know, with the power of our thoughts, we can think ourselves happy. Well, it isn't true. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need to stop telling people that it is true because what happens is they will beat themselves up. You know, when they don't come Beyonce and they don't become Steve Jobs, they build themselves up and they say it's because I'm a failure, I'm a loser. And that leads to all kinds of unpleasant and serious mental health um, uh, uh, disorders. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into all of that because I know you talk extensively about that in the book. But what I wonder is, uh, first off, have you read the book The Road to Character by David Brooks? No, I've read I read okay. uh, one of his previous books. Um, the okay, so Animal, there's, it was called? Well, the reason I, I brought it up is that he makes a very clear distinction in that book between what he calls resume values and eulogy values, right. which, you know, resume values are all the things that you and I are talking about, you know, becoming Elon Musk, becoming Beyonce. <laughs> and I, I wonder, why do you think that as a culture, we have prized resume value so much? And why do we seek status so much? Like, why has that become the standard by which we measure our lives? I know this firsthand because I get to talk to outliers all day long. Yeah, And there's this interesting sort of part of me that made me realize that, wow, I judge you know, my success based on comparing myself to the people that I interview. And uh, often they've done things that I can't, could never do in a million yeah. years. Yeah. Well, um, cause there's, 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 there's two different answers, right? So, so the first, you know, so one of the things you said was that why, why in our culture do we crave status so, so much? So that isn't just our culture. Humans crave status. So, so, so when you listen to evolution psychologists, they say that humans, all humans are driven by two wills. Right? And that's to get along with other people and to get ahead of other people. So if you sort of bury down another layer and think about kind of the Darwinian evolutionary drive, all animals, all creatures, all, all life forms want to survive and they want to reproduce, right? Um, but, but, but humans are very, you know, we've evolved in a particular way. And, and so we, we've evolved certain specific strategies for survival and reproduction. And the strategy that we've evolved is that we are a highly cooperative animal that, that survives in groups, so, 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 so for the vast majority of our time on Earth, we've been living in these hunter-gatherer groups that have survived because they are brilliant at cooperating and working together, like much better than any other ape, like you know, on a completely different level. And it's that kind of cooperation um, that, that's, that's the secret of our success. So, 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 so our version of those Darwinian drives are to get along with people, so to be accepted into that group. Because if you're not accepted into that group, then you're going to die. Like that, you can't. In, in the time when we evolved, you had to be part of a group, but you can't hunt and live on your own. So that was the, that's the, the basic one. But then what happens when you join that group, immediately you enter this kind of status war. We, we, no, not war, I don't say war, so it's competition you know, with, with the people in that group. You start, there's a, there's a kind of jostling there. Because back when we were evolving, the more status that you had, kind of the better food you had, the more secure, the more secure your kind of shelter. Um, uh, um, 
the better reproductive kind of partners that you, you were going to have access to. Uh, so, so you had all these kind of benefits that were attached with status. So everybody, you know, and this is, this is so much part of our history now. It's become kind of baked into our cognition. We're, we're born, the brain has this fundamental understanding that connection and status that's what we're after. Those are the kind of those are the kind of prizes. So, so status is is universal. What changes? So, the layer on top of all that on that bio, biology is culture. So, different cultures have different ways by which it rewards status. So, in the West, that's where we get to the other part of your question. In the West, we award status with these. I think you call them resume qualities. So, yeah, it's, it's about individual achievement, and that's because we are individualists. So uh, it's a really, I mean, I just found this an amazing s- s- story when I um, was doing the research. Um, it, it really goes back to ancient Greece. This is the, the, the kind of idea that's kind of dominant at the moment in the social sciences. There's a guy called Professor Richard Nisbet, who's the pioneer of all this work. And it's really supported by a whole nexus of evidence from all kind of different domains. So, so it really is looking like a very kind of powerful idea. And the idea is that... Um, uh, you know, the, the, the history of the Western personality be, begins in ancient Greece, you know, as historians say, and the question is, well, why? Uh, and so you look at the, one of the, one of the things you do is you look at the ecology of ancient Greece. You look at the kind of the landscape of ancient Greece. And it wasn't like um, a, a nation as we think of it today or elsewhere. It wasn't, it's not even a coherent landmass. It's, it's, it's kind of this coastal, there's lots of coastlines and these sort of little islands surrounded by sea obviously um and and all and and the coastline is all kind of rocky mountains descending to sea little islands here and there um i don't know if, you know anybody's ever been to greece will, will, will surely have noticed it's it, it, the landscape is kind of barren it's not particularly pretty it's kind of a rocky um scrubby kind of landscape um pebbly beaches um so what that means uh, is that um in order to kind of survive in order to get along and get ahead in ancient Greece, to get those to, to pursue those two goals, you you had to be a bit of a hustler because elsewhere in the world, people were doing were farming, rearing livestock. Um, you know, they'd work we'd worked out by this stage how to grow crops. So with this sort of mostly either a hunter gatherer or agricultural kind of people. Um, but ancient Greece, it was different because you couldn't you couldn't do those things. You couldn't you couldn't you couldn't really raise a big herd of livestock or um, grow wheat or anything like that because of the landscape. So, so you were forced to be a hustler. So you, you know, you were you were writing poetry or growing olive oil out the four trees in your you know, backyard, or you were drying animal hides, or more, most likely you were out fishing because there was so much coastline. There was lots of people out there fishing and trading with each other, and and so so that's the first thing. So so so, so, so you know, people were rewarded. Um, by being this individualistic hustler, by looking after themselves, by not relying on the group, by looking after themselves and pr- prioritizing their own individual kind of success. So education becomes a, a, a big thing. You know, it, 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 this kind of mindset, of course, it's the first ever example we have of democracy. And in that, that was extraordinary that there was a form of democracy in, in Athens two and a half thousand years ago. Like this is proper Game of Thrones, you know, era of of, of tyrants and um, bloodshed and, and all that stuff. And the fact that there was democracy for 50 years is, is extraordinary. Of course, you've got, you know, the Olympics, this incredible celebration of kind of self versus self. So that kind of individualistic self-starting mindset becomes a, a kind of cultural ideal. You see um, the idealized physical forms in statues, you know, in the marketplace. Um, you, you, they, they have to, they, they, you know, this is the culture that comes up with the myth of Narcissus, which is the 
kind of warning story about this this guy uh, who, who who sees his reflection in in in, um, in some water and he falls in love with the reflection and then he, when he realizes that he can't marry the reflection because it's actually him he, he ends up dying with despair and heartbreak <laughs> so, so so that's how that, that's how much this kind of individualistic self-love became you know an issue aristotle was out there talking about how you could never he believed that all all things in nature were moving towards their kind of perfect state naturally including humans but in order to become perfect you had to kind of spend your time he called it in a state of ennobled self-love so this is this is a really extraordinary idea and it's completely different to kind of how we're wired up we're wired up to to think groupishly and to be groupish and of course, we still are kind of groupish, but the, but the, but this became the emphasis moved away from groupishness in ancient Greece o- onto the individual, and it had to because of the of the way um, the, the the landscape was. And mm-hmm. so, what, what what they do in 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 in, in, the, in the social sciences is they is they do kind of various kind of tests on the different culture, and, and what they like to do is they compare people from the West. Uh, with people from East Asia, and they like East Asia because East Asia has completely the opposite landscape of ancient Greece. It's you know landlocked, it's big, it's mount, it's um you know undulating landscape, it's sort of highly kind of fertile, great for farming, uh, and so what you see um, in East Asia, like so, if you were born two and a half thousand years ago in East Asia, it, you're born in an environment whereby in order to get along and get ahead, you had to become the group had to work. Because what they were doing was um, big wheat growing projects, big, you know, very, very labor intensive rice growing projects, or they had these huge, like sort of magnificent, really sort of complex and advanced irrigation projects, which people um, were were working on. So so, so it was very much a group first um, culture. And and that's exactly the idea of self that comes out of East Asia. So whereas Aristotle was banging on about ennobled self-love and, you know, individual perfection in Two and a half thousand years ago in ancient Greece, in the same rough period, Confucius was walking around in in, in East Asia talking about how um, you know the superior man has nothing to boast of and he bows in deference and um, doesn't is not interested in profit and so completely the opposite ideal of self. <clears throat> okay, so you might think, well, that's all two and a half thousand years ago. That's nothing to do with today. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so what they do, they, 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 there's various ways of of looking at this, and one of the kind of most ingenious things that that, that, that they do is they is they put young people from the west from like america canada the uk in the lab and compare them with young people from east asia from confucian cultures so china vietnam japan and they um and they they, they put these special sort of spectacles on them in the lab that, that um monitor the the kind of sort of minute unconscious movement of their eyes they're called saccades it's the fastest movement in the human body the saccade it's the it's that high definition core of your vision that kind of scans your environment and builds the picture of the world that you experience sort of moment by moment is real and what they do is they um they, they show them a kind of an animated cartoon of a fish tank and on this cartoon there's a big orange sort of flashy orange fish at the front and then and, and um it's this fish tank and then when you take the the people the westerners out of the um, uh, the, the experiment, and you, and you say to them, you know, what did you see? They go, well, I saw a fish. I just saw this fish, and it was an orange fish. And and so, and when they, when I look at the movement of their eyes, they're mainly focusing on this big orange fish at the front, and it will relatively rarely sort of move out to its environment. But when you put show an East Asian person um, um, in the same animation, they're far and they're far more likely their their eyes are unconsciously sort of scanning the whole environment and, and working out the whole thing, you know, all the fish around it, the, the environment. And, you know, and, and don't forget, you only 
see the things that your fovea is directing itself to. So they're, they're literally experiencing a different world. And you, and you take them out of the, the lab and you say to the East Asian, what did you see? And they tend to say, well, I saw a fish tank and there were always fish in it and there was this big fish at the front and there was always other fish. So, so people from East Asia, you know, they, 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 it, it, even, um, uh, it even kind of predicts their kind of experience of reality. In, in, in the West, we tend to focus on individual things, the big, obvious individual things. And on, in East Asia, they're much more interested in, in, in sort, of, sort of context yeah, in, in, in the situation, in, 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 in the kind of German environment. And it kind of builds up to really important difference in values as well, because what happens is you say to the Westerner, um, what did you think of that fish? And the Westerner will say, well, it was the leader. I like that fish. It was the leader. It was the boss, obviously. And then you say to the East Asian person, what did you think of that fish? And they say, well, I felt sorry for that fish um, because it's obviously been ejected from the group and it was obviously lonely. So they have completely different kind of value systems and, and different kind of, kind of emotional and kind of almost moral experiences of the world that kind of build out from these kind of basic ideas. Of course, we're talking very general. This is a, this is, it's not 100%. You won't put every Chinese person in a lab and get the same results. Obviously, you should put that caveat yeah. in there. You can't you can't take these general findings and reduce them down to an individual because there's huge this huge variety over that on, on the on the level of the individual. But generally speaking, this is what this is this is what you find. I mean, other studies take a completely different approach and look at things like how uh, murders are reported in newspapers. So one of these tests analysed how spree killer murders were um, reported in. Chinese language newspapers versus English language newspapers. And they found that in English language newspapers, because we're individualistic, we blamed the individual. So it was like, this is a bad, evil person. They're nasty, awful, terrible. And the, and the fault lay in the self of the person. But the East Asian um, newspaper report was far more aware of the situation. And they would talk about the family situation, that they just had an argument with their boss and they just lost their job. And, th- and there was far more awareness of the kind of situational stuff that had pushed that spree killer potentially into committing that crime. So there are all kinds of sort of good and, we could say good and bad effects um, that, that, that arise from these, these differences. And they do seem to all have arisen, amazingly as it sounds, um, from the physical landscape of two and a half thousand years ago. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. So let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and get into the concepts in the book. I mean, it, you you subtitled the book, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. So let's first talk a little bit about how we became self, so self-obsessed. I think that, you know, there are numerous quotes that struck me in the book, but this one in particular stood out. You said, we're living in an age of perfectionism and perfection is the idea that kills, whether it's social media or pressure to be the impossibly perfect 21st iteration, 21st century iterations of ourselves or pressure to have the perfect body, or pressure to be successful in our careers, or any of the other myriad ways in which we place overly high expectations on ourselves and other people, we're creating a, a psychological environment that is toxic. So how did we end up here? Well, so so, so the beginning of the story is obviously ancient Greece, because, it, because what happens in individualism is it puts all of that pressure on the individual. And that's very mm. motivating. The good thing about that is that we tell people, you, you know, like, you know, Greek myths are full of individualistic heroes, individuals, fighting monsters and bringing, bringing back great treasure to the community, you know, unless they're kind of tragedies, obviously. But then the tragedies are about individualists, kind of tragic heroes, um, you know, um, uh, 
falling for their kind of flaw. So it's, it, it's very much about the kind of the individual. So it's this myth of the, 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 the power, the locus of power lies in the individual. And, and that was sort of very powerful in ancient Greece. And it's very powerful in ancient Rome. And then we go through this big period of Christianity, which is a bit different. It's kind of like Middle Eastern religion kind of washes through the West and we become a bit less individualistic. And then that all changes in the, in, 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 in the 1950s in America. You know, America is this extraordinary place. Um, similar in lots of unusual, little sort of, sort of unexpected ways to ancient Greece, even down to the fact that, you know, the, the, the physical makeup of, of the United States, like ancient Greece was the, with the, with these a thousand individualistic city states. So it was like this collection of communities. And of course, in America, you've got your, 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 your United States. It's like 51 of these, um, uh, individual states that all sort of make up this whole. So it's, it's so, so, um, and in the 1950s, um, uh, there's this new idea um, uh, uh, becomes popular. And so in between the ancient world and I'd say the end of Sigmund Freud, the, the default idea has been that people are terrible, that people are awful. We have original sin. We're born with original sin. It's this Christian story, you know, it's Eastern story. Um, uh, and there's nothing we can do about it. All we can do is kind of grovel to God and beg for forgiveness and hope that we um, don't sin enough that we get sent to hell. That's basically the story that we all um, live with for, for a hell of a long time. And it doesn't actually change much with Sigmund Freud. I mean, Sigmund Freud tends to be this guy that's seen as kind of revolutionizing the way we see ourselves. But actually, he believed in original sin too. He, you know, he, was, he had all these kind of crazy ideas about Oedipus complex, you know, and, and obviously another ancient Greek idea, um, you know, that the, the, the kind of we wanted to sleep with our mothers and we had to we repress these ideas. So still, it was all based around this idea that people are terrible, and they wanted and they had to kind of, uh, in order to, to be happy and successful, they had to fix their inner terribleness. And in America, um, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, there came this idea that actually no, that's wrong. At the very core of the human animal it is perfect. It is amazing. It is wonderful, and it is special. And actually, what happens is that when we're born, society and culture puts all this stuff on top of us that stops us actualizing and being amazing. And what we need to do is kind of rip away all those kind of layers of terribleness of, that culture puts there and find the kind of perfect core within. And and it, and, it, and, it, and it's called the human potential movement or humanistic psychology. Mm -hmm. And what are the big um, um, progenitors of that. It's a guy called Carl Rogers, and you know, um, Carl Rogers, uh, incredibly influential psychotherapist, psychologist. And um, he's called the second most influential psychotherapist after Sigmund Freud. And he was one of the big um, uh, um, pioneers of this idea. And, 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 it, and it sort of obviously starts off uh, 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 as, a, as a bit of a niche idea, but, it, but it, it ends up kind of taking over the world. And, 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 it, and what happens. So in, in the 60s and 70s, it, it kind of drives the kind of hippie, the hippie um, uh, um, community. And, and what happens in the kind of early kind of uh, to, to kind of mid-late part of the 20th century is that we're still quite collective. Like we're individualists, but we're in this kind of collective place in the, in this, in the 20th century. We've had the Second World War, the First World War, the Great Depression, and all, all these disasters have knocked us in the West into this kind of much more collective state. So if you think about it, we had the GI Bill, we had the welfare state, we had the New Deal, we had loads of regulations on business and banking, we had high taxation, unionization. So lots of collective stuff. And it worked for a while. We, you know, we were, we were a collective people and it, and it created a, a collective sense of self. So in the, you know, in the 40s and 50s, it was 
in the States, especially this idea of corporation man. And it was the rise of the suburbs. And it was about this idea of the, these guys in their monkey suits getting off the train and all piling into the corporation where they'd have a job for life. And they were a member of the union and all this stuff. Um, and they gave birth, of course, to the hippies who are even more collective um, minded people, really, really collective for, for Westerners uh, and very open to kind of these Eastern ideas. And then the problem is in the, in the 70s, that all starts going wrong. So, the, you know, the, all these collective ways that we're organizing our Western society start falling to pieces. Um, the economy starts collapsing. And so the politicians have to kind of come upon this new idea. Like, how are we going to fix? We're going to fix everything and make sure that the, you know, the West doesn't collapse. And so the idea they, that they come upon is, is neoliberalism. And neoliberalism, the new freedom, of course, is what neoliberalism means. And so what the idea is, is, is that we're going to get rid of all this collective stuff and we're going to recreate this hyper-individualistic society of kind of self versus self-competition. We're kind of re going to reawaken the kind of ancient Greek that lies kind of latent inside us all. And in fact, in, you know, obviously Reagan and in, uh, over in the UK, Margaret Thatcher were the great pioneers of neoliberalism. And um, in 1981, I found this interview with Thatcher where she was asked by the Sunday Times, you know, what was your big plan, Maggie? You know, <laughs> are you going to save us? And she said, oh, the things that, that's annoyed me about the kind of policies over the last few decades has always been towards the more kind of collectivist state. And this is this really sinister thing. She said, um, and so, so, so the, 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 the project is economic. But the object is to change the soul. So really like, like sinister stuff, like she's changing who we are. And it's sinister because it's true, it worked. You know, so we still have these brains. We're born kind of semi-finished. And, you know, the, the brain wants to know, who do I have to turn into in order to get those two goals, connection and status? And that changes in the 80s. Whereas before it was like hippie, you had to collective. Now, you, you know, it's you know, so, so neoliberalism. They, they're attacking the unions. They're getting rid of the regulations for business and banking. It's the end of the job for life era. It's um, we're, we're privatizing all these nationalized kind of assets. We are dropping taxation. So you're, you're creating a co co competition wherever you can find it. And, you know, it's the era of globalization. So what globalization is this neoliberal project, like the neoliberal fantasy is of this turning the entire globe into this unfettered free market with no barriers. So, you know, jobs and goods can, and services can, can flow freely all throughout the globe, right? So it's, so, so, so it's a highly competitive environment and it creates a highly competitive people. So one of the first changes that we see in the data is in, I think it's 1982, it could be 1983, where um, Professor Jean Twenge um, did this amazing study looking at children's names, baby names. And, and you look at the baby names for, for, for decades, probably centuries beforehand, and Americans were uh, just like all over the West, we're just naming our children normal names like George and Jeffrey and Samantha, whatever it is. And then in 1983, something really unusual starts happening, and that's that people start giving their children unusually spelled baby names, like weird names, weird spellings. And, uh, you know, and, and the conclusion was well, suddenly parents wanted their children to stand out and be a star. You also see this is the beginning of the Keep Fit Revolution. Jim Fix, uh, you know, Jane Fonda workout video sells millions. Um, so, so, so this individualistic kind of culture really, it, it's very it's sort of shockingly quick how, how, how it starts changing us as a people. And really the best way of thinking about it is if you think about who we are in 1965, versus who we were in 1985. It's an absolute revolution in self. We've gone from these collectivistic hippies, screw the man, you know, um, 
screw money, screw materialism. Um, uh, it's all a con to Wall Street. You know, greed is good. I mean, I know, of course, that's another huge generalization, but generally speaking, that's what happened in the West. And it happens mm. because the economy changed, because who we had to be in order to get along and get ahead, um, uh, it changed. And, and so that, 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 then that blends with this idea of humanistic psychology, which, 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 which emerges um, in the 80s as the self-esteem movement. So it becomes this, it becomes this much kind of very simplified idea. And that is that people are wonderful, people are special, people are amazing. If we want to kind of solve all our social problems like homelessness and drug abuse, but also want to make people more competitive in this new hyper-individualistic realm, we need to just, we need to um, get them in touch with their kind of perfect inner wonderful core. And so this idea b- becomes hugely popular popular it almost kind of kind of viral across the west um that that that, it, that that we need to just tell our children if we tell our children they're wonderful and special and amazing and protect them from failure as much as possible then they will become wonderful and special and amazing and that of course you know really encourages this this this, this idea of um perfectionism you know people feel increasingly that they have to be perfect in order to survive and because of the self-esteem movement which has its kind of roots in all this humanistic psychology people think that deep down their authentic self is perfect anyway and all they've got to do in order to achieve perfection is just to kind of be themselves and it's just not true and it's it's incredibly toxic and and we're still in this neoliberal environment we're still living in this um humanistic psychology world where we're telling people you just got if you if you have a dream, just reach out and grab it. Um, if, you, you know uh, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. The world is your oyster, and you know these are very motivating and kind of wonderful on one level, but they're also incredibly toxic. Because what happens as individualists is that we we're very good at giving ourselves the credit for our success, which is actually the success of lots of people. You know the communities of people generally, like Steve. You know we, we tell each other that Steve Jobs invented the iPhone, when it's actually Steve Jobs just sort of whipped a bunch of other really hardworking people into, into inventing the iPhone for him. So we're very good at doing that. But, but, but the, the dark side of that is we're also very good at blaming ourselves when we fail. And that's, that's, we, we don't do that East Asian thing of, well, there's this and this and this and this and this. These are the different reasons why I had a failure in this instance. It's like, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. And, we can, and, and it turns in on ourselves. So when you look at all these things that have been, that have been rising, especially since the global financial crisis in 2008, self-harm, eating disorder, body dysmorphia, suicide, all on the up since 2008. One of the things that all those conditions has in common is perfectionism, perfectionistic thinking. And, the, and, the, and, and one of the kind of academic clinical definitions of perfectionism is it's somebody that has unusually high expectations for success and kind of repeatedly fails to hit those um, uh, markers for success so they, they continually feel like they're a loser and they're a failure and that's what our culture does these days it sets an unusually high marker for success it, it, it presents us with this um perfect self on tv on radio on the internet and in social media and it says if you're not this person you have failed so if you're not beyonce is the message if you're not steve jobs then you, you're doing something wrong and that is um incredibly toxic it really, really is incredibly toxic because it's not true. Um, uh, and uh, and what, what happens is that people blame themselves. They think, well, I'm a failure. And, and, then you, and then that's when you get this whole raft of terrible kind of psychological disorders. And actually between the first edition of Selfie, my book, and the, the, the second one, between the UK edition and the US edition, there was published a study 
um, of 40,000 young people across the US, Canada, and the UK since 1990. And um, it, it, it confirmed my kind of hunch that um, levels of perfectionism are rising, have been rising significantly since the late 80s, early 90s. That is, people um, are thinking more and more that they have to be perfect in order to kind of be an acceptable human being. Yeah. Wow. Uh, this is, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because I think that a lot of people who listen to this show are listening to become better versions of themselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I, they don't do this. I mean, I just, I, you know, I was looking at, uh, I got Tim Ferriss's email today and, you know, I was like, oh, holy shit, Tim Ferriss landed LeBron James as a guest on his podcast. I'm like, okay. Why can't I do that? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. The first thing was, okay, what NBA player could I get on? I'm, I'm just a little creative. That's one of the first things that crossed my mind. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. Why does this even matter? I want to listen to the interview because it's it's fast. It sounds fascinating. I've been curious. Yeah. But I think that, you know, like, like you said, you know, curiosity becomes this sort of constant drive to just you know, improve ourselves. Uh, it, it sounds to me, just based on your research, that this has all preceded social media. Social media was just basically a way of pouring gasoline on a fire. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. Yeah. So, so it's, and, yeah. Sorry. Well, you 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 mentioned this quote, which I, I you know I think I shared this on Instagram. This was ironically shared out on Instagram, which is <laughs> this is horrifying to me. By 2014, 93 billion selfies were being taken every day on Android phones alone. Yeah, every third photograph taken by an 18 to 24 year old was of themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and so so I think there's a couple of things that you, you, what you've just said. You know, and and the, and the first one is again, you go to look back at our evolution to, to 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 understand why things have become so toxic, and that is that you know, as I said before, we've evolved to compete for status, um, uh, but we've evolved to live in kind of human groups of around 150 people. So we we are kind of neurologically equipped, you might say, to compete with not even 150 people, but we we compete with people who are kind of our age group. It used to be, but isn't anymore our own gender. So it was a very limited kind of game we were playing with other people. And now with social media, it's the whole world. You know, we are, that, that, that's, how, that, 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 that's kind of what it's like and you can't help it. So um, one of the ways the brain works out how we're doing in our lives, how successful we are, how, how much we're thriving is by comparing ourselves to the people around us. It's just an automatic unconscious thing that we do. And, um, and you know, in, back in our evolutionary days, okay, that, that's just a few people. It's a kind of a, a kind of large handful of people. But today, especially on Instagram, you know, you're flicking through it and there's, yeah, there's Tim Ferriss, you know, with this mm-hmm. off looking amazing. And there's um, Steve Jobs and there's Sheryl Sandberg and there's Beyonce or whoever it is. And there's me, you know, and, and even though you know intellectually, logically, analytically that I'm not Sheryl Sandberg, I'm not Steve Jobs, you know, I, I, it would be silly to compare myself to these people. You still do because that's, that, that's the way that your your brain works. You still get that that little hit, so that's why it's so it, it, it's so potentially dangerous uh, uh, social media because it puts you in this game, this game, this competitive game, which you're kind of wired to play with the, the most successful people in the world. And, and, and it's weird because it's not like an all together bad thing because no doubt that has pushed lots of people like you to make a better and better and better podcast so so, so it's very motivating um uh, and in fact i did see a study recently which said it found that envy is is a bit is a better motivator than ambition alone which was quite extraordinary um uh, but but also there's a significant downside uh, and that's because tim ferris is tim ferris he's this kind of rare god you know he's he's, he's not 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 if you're tim ferris 
you could quite easily, that's one of the mistakes that we make. You could very easily think, well, I can do this and I don't find it too difficult. So if I can do this, anyone can do it. But that's literally not true. You know, only Tim Ferriss can be Tim Ferriss. Um, so, 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 so you kind of, it's very easy to kind of fall into these, into these traps. You know, people think, well, if I can't do it, why can't you? And it, we become very judgmental about other people. You know, well, look how, look how overweight that person is. If I can stay thin, um, why can't they stay thin? But they have, you've got no idea what it feels like to be in that person's body. And, and, to, and to be in that person's brain and body is to be somebody that, ha- that has a much higher, um, kind of probably a much higher system of reward for eating bad food than you do. So therefore, they, have, they are dealing with a level of temptation of which you can only kind of vaguely imagine. So they're fighting these monsters of kind of sugar and fat that are big, powerful monsters and which for you or for Tim Ferriss are nowhere near so big. And, and because we can't just jump into their brain and experience what life is like from them, we just think it's that awful, toxic trap we all do. Well, if I can do it, why can't you? Well, because we're all so unbelievably different. That's why. Yeah. Wow. Do you use social media? Uh, less so these days. <laughs> I, use, yeah. I, use, well, I use Twitter for just professional. I've got the world's most boring Twitter stream. But, you know, I used, to, <laughs> I used to sort of pollute it with my half-baked political opinions as everybody else does. And, and now it's just, yeah. it's just if, you, if you like my writing, you follow me on Twitter and I'll tell you when I've got something happening. That's it. Instagram, yeah. I, I just, I, I don't use that as a professional thing. It's open, but it's, it's just pictures of, that I've taken that I think are nice pictures that never include me. <laughs> And um, Facebook, I haven't been on for years. But if I could, if I could, if I could get off Twitter, I would get off Twitter. But it's it's very useful professionally, so I I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I in my mind, you know, I started working on this piece titled "The, the Demise of the Social Media Industrial Complex," and and uh, I just started thinking that you know, at this point, we're we're starting to see exactly what you're talking about: rise of. Suicides, depression, you know, these companies are profiting uh, not just at the productivity of their users, but at their mental health. Mm. Other than stopping, uh, do we have a way out of this? Is there a solution? And, uh, you know, what is it? I mean, how do you how do you solve a problem where you have a company that is disrupting democracy, but is so deeply embedded into our lives that it's actually hard to quit? Yeah, well, I think I mean, I I I think. My own view is that neoliberalism has, has gone too far. I think that the, 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 the great thing about neoliberalism is it does it is, is it is it is it kind of plugs into the our kind of status our status um, uh, craving kind of competitive systems and uh, uh, and kind of encourages it and rewards that. Um, um, but the downside is that, that, that it kind of goes too far, and and, and there's there's been this kind of huge. Um, movement to, to kind of strip away regulation. And Silicon Valley is a really highly individualistic place with a highly individualistic culture. And the very idea of regulation to them seems like you're, you're proposing communism. You know what I mean? They're like, they really don't like it at all. And, and that mindset has destroyed almost the music industry. It's destroyed almost my business, which is the journalism business. It's, you know, this idea that um, we, we can do what we want. Um, and, and they've been uh, uh, has caused huge harm. It's 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 it's, it's, it's you know it's um um uh, it's 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 hugely problematic. And I, and I do think that one of the one of the kind of boring but necessary solutions is um, regulation. And I think that's going to happen because just since I started writing on working on selfie, when I was working on selfie, started working on selfie, the, the general idea of Silicon Valley companies that there were these cool young hip. Um, guys and girls who were um, just, you know, just, just just trying to change the world, man, for the better. And now, and there's definitely been a shift over the last two years where people are 
waking up to the fact that, 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 that these, these it's just big tobacco it's just big pharma you know it's just another big powerful industry who only have their own interests at heart because that's that's what people are like as we run businesses a lot you know we're all like um and so so, so i i think i i do think it Hopefully, it will happen that, that, that there is going to be some, sort of some level of kind of control, um, uh, um, kind of forced upon these um, uh, companies. And, and I also feel that there is the, the, the other thing is again is, is is in that kind of education. I think one of the one of the most toxic effects of social media, especially kind of Twitter, in, in my own experience, is is the, is the political stuff. Is that is that people use it as a kind of springboard to kind of um, kind of exercise their kind of political rage and I, and I think all that does is it smothers every, each other it, it smothers people you know in each other's kind of rage and 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 and, for, for, and it's I think it's it's hugely problematic because I think one of the interesting sort of bits of data I found in selfie I can't remember the exact number annoyingly but but somebody managed to kind of quantify the kind of the level of our kind of moral outrage that we would experience sort of back in the um, uh, our kind of evolutionary days and, and compared to now. And of course, now in Twitter, it's off the charts. So what moral outrage is there for um, probably is, is, is that when we were um, living in these tribes, um, they think that human language evolved in order to, to spread gossip and because gossip helps us cooperate with each other. So if you, if you do something wrong and antisocial and against the group, people will gossip about you and then you feel moral outrage and the moral outrage motivates you to act in one of three ways ostracization, humiliation, or violence. Okay. So, so those haven't changed. That, 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 that's the, still the ways that we punish kind of antisocial people on Twitter. Um, um, but, but that kind of moral outrage would have been a relatively rare thing. But what was happening in, in, in social media is, is, is that as soon as you open Twitter, it is, you are awash with moral outrage because even if you've, Kind of carefully trimmed away all of the people on Twitter who broadcast political beliefs that you don't agree with and annoy you and irritate you and frustrate you. The people that you agree with are then tweeting about these people have done these awful, terrible, awful, nightmarish, barbaric, demonic things. And so there's almost no escape from this kind of moral outrage, and it just makes you angry and angry, angry and angrier. And of course, it just put, it just kind of massively encourages this this awful increase in tribalism that we've seen since 2008, where the right, are, the right are getting rightier, and the left are getting leftier, and and um, people in the middle are, are, are kind of are left with no kind of political kind of home, uh, and so I, I I hope that you know partly through education, when people if we can teach people um, about the dangers of social media, if we can teach people about the history of moral outrage, the purpose of moral outrage, why it's this kind of valuable but very dangerous resource, that when we experience it, we should be very careful, and also what it does to our co cognition. You know, when we're feeling morally outraged, we're all becoming angry. Uh, it affects the way our brains pass the world, like it literally affects our ability to grapple with arguments. So the more angry and morally outraged we become, the less good we are at judging the arguments of the other kind of team. So we become more biased and more prejudiced and more wrong. So it's this kind of vicious circle. And, and you see it happening out in the, it happens that that's the story, that's the history of the human animal, isn't it? You know, we, we, you know, something goes wrong, we become more and more and more tribal until there's a horrific tipping point and we start attacking each other. And you hope that isn't where this is going to end up. But we certainly become, you know, I, I, as a left-wing person, I, you know, I certainly experienced the, the, the distress of, for the first time, seeing people on my team um, advocate for political violence. You know, the whole 
punch a Nazi kind of idea, which is horrific to me as a left wing person. Political violence is serious, but this is becoming a kind of a common thing. You know, um, people talking about kind of in inverted commas white people in in, in a way that if that, that is clearly tribalistic and prejudicial and completely self defeating. Uh, and so, the values that I thought defined my team, which is the left wing team, uh, are, are, are being sort of trampled on because because we've becoming so angry, and we've we've been becoming so angry. I think a lot of it's down to not all of it, but a lot of it's down to you know the effect of social media on our every single day where we, we are needled by the other team, and that wasn't happening before. Yeah, wow. This has been really, really mind-blowing and, and insightful and oh, thought-provoking. So, Thank you. Uh, I want to finish with one last question, uh, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable okay, cool. what do you think that makes? What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, mis- unmistakable. Um, unmistakable. I, I don't understand what you mean by unmistakable. Well, you know, people have, have you know answered this in various ways, but uh, my personal definition of unmistakable, which has kind of been the sort of driving force behind my work, is is the ability to make something or create something that is so distinctive that nobody else could have done it. Ah, but you. Okay, yeah, great, great, great. Okay, so what makes um, somebody um, uh, unmistakable? I suppose is um, is I don't want this to sound too banal, but but it really is the idea of knowing and kind of trusting yourself. I think that's what it is. I think it's about um, understanding that you're um, um, kind of a unique voice with a unique um, uh, set of ideas and a a unique perspective on the world and to not um, immediately assume that that's a bad thing uh, and to actually kind of embrace that. So you know, my favorite musician is a guy called Mark Mark Kozlek, who is kind of in in the business right now of really redefining what music is. He's just extraordinary. He was this kind of um, they call it landfill indie in the UK. You know, just like he was this indie band, you know, alternative music band that were just like one of a just a million that sounded exactly the same. And then he started um, <coughs> telling stories about his life with his music. Uh, and now he's releasing albums that, that massively divide people. Like I think his last album, he releases about two a year. They go on for about an hour and a half. Like a song will go on for sixteen minutes, <laughs> you know. And, and he will just tell you stories about his life. And um, and he's the he's the person right now who is completely unmistakable. And he is getting absolutely lambasted by a huge um, proportion of of the, uh, of the music press. Like really, uh, they are laying into him in a, in a big way. And he's he's absolutely unapologetic about it. And and you know, sometimes it is everything his critics say is his music. It's tedious and self-indulgent and unmusical. But there are moments in his kind of late, late career, he's a 53-year-old guy now, where he absolutely achieves um, something that is not only transcendent, but that is completely unique. And, you know, for me, he's the only genius music in working today because he has that courage to go, you know, I, I'm... I'm doing something different and I'm just going to block out all the, all the people that, that don't understand it. And I'm going to um, not worry if I fail uh, and just crack on and, and, and kind of see where this journey takes me. Amazing. Wow. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. We're no, thanks, really. I hope it was okay. more uh, about you, your work, your books and everything you're up to. Oh, um, just well, either on my kind of extremely boring Twitter feed, which is <laughs> at W Store, W S T O R R. It's literally just join it, 
and then you, you'll find out if I'm doing stuff and if I've got articles published or whatever. So, uh, or on my website, which is willstore.com, W-I-L-L-S-T-O-R-R.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. 
Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.